Hello and welcome to Making Problems to Solve, the podcast about curiosity, creativity, and problem solving. I'm Dave and today I'm talking to Rob Ray and Taylor Hokinson, the former hosts of the Opposable Thumbs podcast. How are you guys doing? Good. I'd like to think of our podcast as being in remission, not like a yeah. fight. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Like maybe it'll come back. It'll metastasize. Yeah, and it may prompt us to to become crystal meth cooks or something. You know. All right. Yeah. <laughs> That's one way to do it. That was my yeah. that was my reference to um, TV show names I can never remember. Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was, yeah. yeah. This niche program. You've probably never heard of it. Never heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know this might be the prompt. This this could. Taylor and I always say like one of the the kind of biggest upside of the podcast was we, we just got to hang out with one another, which is really fun, you know? Um, right. And so we keep talking about how do we rekindle that? And it might just be the answer is to start doing the I've been sending again. Rob texts for like a solid two weeks. And this is the first time that I'm getting, I'm getting anything back. <laughs> I just, oh my goodness. That would you. <laughs> I don't, uh, you're, you're a busy guy. Yeah. Yep. Huh. Okay. I won't defend myself. <laughs> cut, that, cut that out. That was, that was uncalled for. No. no, it's totally unedited. So. Yep. There we go. Yep. <laughs> Stays in. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah. Usually I come up with some kind of introduction. I steal off uh, my guest's website, but uh, you guys, I want to see if you remember your introductions uh, from the podcast and you can update it, you know, to whatever you're doing right now. Nice. Uh, who wants sure, to, uh, Taylor, you want to go? Uh, sure. Uh, uh, my name is Taylor Hokinson. I'm an artist, educator, DIY enthusiast, CAD game evangelist, noted tall person, Midwestern Viking, and I'm a he, his kind of guy. Oh my gosh, he nailed it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that was awesome, Taylor. Woo, yeah, that got, was great. I have no idea how I used to introduce myself, so I'll just introduce myself best way I can. I think also because it, I feel like over the course of the podcast, it changed my life changed in like twenty different yeah. ways. It felt like, yeah. So my introduction got different over and over and over again. Um, but um, yeah, wow, I'm an artist. Uh, I'm a professor of design at California State University, San Bernardino, and uh, I am. Uh, mm, uh, a creative weirdo, uh, working a lot in extended reality, and um, and trying to incorporate more music and sound into my life, which is something Taylor always encouraged me to try to rekindle. And so I'm working on that. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's me. Yeah. All right. I'm always curious, like where people started, and kind of I don't know if you guys ever covered this on your show, but like you know, did were you creative like from birth like a lot of people end up being uh you know taking things apart uh problem solving uh you know just putting things back together in weird ways you guys doing that as kids how about reb you start every other one so okay okay cool okay cool (laughs) (laughs) okay cool so i guess it's my turn so um wow i i i i mean i think i did i do think i found i've been sort of um interested in art making uh as a as a younger human you know i and i think the thing that really sort of codified it for me um was a couple of things one was um skateboarding you know like skateboarding culture had a lot of like drawing and art and graffiti and uh making ramps and like lots of kind of adjunct 
activities and creative efforts. And so skateboarding for me was a kind of catalyst for all of that. And then I got into music because of skateboarding. So I got into music in my own life that way. So I, I think skating really is a big prompt. Um, also, um, shout out to Miss Kaufman, my high school art teacher who really um, just knew exactly how to like feather the gas pedal on like rebellious weirdo kids and get them to do stuff, you know, and like really right. just knew how to rock that in this way that was really stimulating to me. And I felt really supported by an adult for one of the first times in my life. And so um, that was, that was really cool. That, that feels like the, the biggest kind of moments for me. Cool. I think, um, I think it took me a really long time to have any kind of, uh, uh, Oh man, I was, I was just like a wet noodle until I was in college. Yeah. I didn't really pursue much of anything except for a vague interest in Renaissance fairs and that sort of thing. Um, but I think we just didn't really have anyone around. Like in my friend group, everyone's parents were, um, scientists or medical people or whatever. So we didn't even have, you know, the one, like the one uncle that knew how to nail two boards together or whatever. And so I think that latent stuff was kind of in there, but it just never really, manifested at all. And then I went to college. I went to a school that didn't require a portfolio because I hadn't really made much of anything. Um, then as with a lot of people I went to school with, I think we were just trying to find an area that rewarded our general personalities as opposed to having any kind of pretension of, I want to be represented by a blue chip gallery or something like that. All right. What made you think you should go to art college then? Do you have any idea? I don't know, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think I liked I liked art, and I took some summer classes. Oh, so I had um, – see, now I need to find my teacher's name, Rob, because that's so awesome that you know <laughs> your teachers. But I took a, a figure modeling class at the Cleveland Institute of Art over the summer, and it was a, it was a nude model. And I think I was not yet 16 because my mom had to drop me off there. So it's like this weird contrast of – Sure. mom dropping me off and then looking at a naked body for the first time in my life. <laughs> and then I, it was very informative because the, uh, the teacher was like really crunchy, really great, but kind of like a crunchy sort of hippie type. And then she kept having to come over and mash the breasts down. So they had actual gravity. <laughs> like she kept coming over to my figure and being like, smush, smush, come on. <laughs> uh, Cause I think I was too, too embarrassed to actually examine the body for the real shapes that um, it had. So there's okay. an origin story. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. What made you go to that class? Like who gave you the idea to take a figure drawing class in the summer? I think, uh, I think that was my friend, Dave Arnold, who um, now works for the government uh, on the Mexican drug war. <laughs> so like, wow. He, you know, he went super square. I mean, he was always kind of like a, a straight and narrow sort of guy, but then his older sister, um, like she got him into prints and she, you know, she, like she was the one, I, I guess, I think she was the one that was kind of like leading the rebellion charge and he was able to pick up enough of it and rub it off on me. Cause I didn't have a older siblings or younger siblings for that matter. Good job, Dave. All right. Hmm. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always find that kind of fun. And I'm curious, you say you're a self-taught engineer. Um, what, what does that entail? <laughs> Uh, uh, so, what would be a good example? Like, um, I've been working with, um, one of my big collaborators is Kay Dart, who works out of, uh, Shepherd University in West Virginia. 
And so she has an engineering degree. So she double majored engineer and fine arts and like has the actual, you know, read a book once and does math and that kind of thing. And, and I think for me, I've been sort of, um, I kind of put all my information together. Like I'm alone by myself living in the post-apocalyptic wasteland and trying to recreate <laughs> basic math out of a textbook, <laughs> like okay. while, while, while fighting off a three eyed fish or something. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I have an obsession with like trying to figure it out and the and finding value and doing it myself and kind of doing it the hard way. I'm now coming to see a little bit on purpose rather than just sitting down and kind of doing it the right way. Um, I don't know, Rob, does that resonate with you? I feel like that describes you too a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I, I roll around in my head, like what is engineering and what is art and what is design way too much. But um, I mean, I think the thing that I am trying to do more and more is to, you know, um, tackle certain things that engineers appreciate, like uh, reproducibility <laughs> and, you know, other sort of uh, concerns that maybe the artist doesn't necessarily have that, a, that an engineer might, um, you know, reliability, that kind of stuff. I used to be far more cavalier in um, feeling okay if the thing didn't last. And I've been trying to make that a little bit tougher. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can, I can definitely relate to that. I mean, I think, um, especially, uh, you know, more and more people are able to, I think, to appreciate the overlappings between engineering and art making and design and creativity. Um, and, uh, but it always feels like a struggle. And so I think sometimes we have to dive into, um, you know, put a single hat on and say like, okay, what would, what, you know, how do I think like an engineer? I, th I think part of that also comes from learning new things. Like when I'm like researching 3d printing or something, it's often engineering voice in the documentation. And so I have to kind of put on that engineer hat in order to, I have to like cosplay an engineer in order to kind of understand where they're coming from. And I find that helps me. So listen with your engine ears. Oh, oh, yes. <laughs> wow. Oh, Ooh. I'd drop a mic if I hadn't lost it. Donk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, cause Taylor, you nailed it. You said, I like, you know, trying to figure things out and then you do things the hard way on purpose, which is basically what, you know, the name of the show refers to. Yeah. So <laughs> it makes perfect sense. And I mean, I think you guys, you know, did that for a hundred episodes of your podcast or whatever. Um, you know, every week or every, you know, two weeks or however, mm -hmm. whatever the interval yeah. was, you would Painting create a problem. A yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, okay, yeah. You have a very short amount of time and you have to come up with an idea that, you know, meets this theme, you know, and with whatever you got, you know, you don't have to, there's no other constraints except for time, really. For sure. Yeah. By the way, I, I have yeah. to just say, like, I think making problems to solve is such a great title. <laughs> yeah. It's really good. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. Like every time I see it, I'm like in my podcast reader, I'm like, that's such a good title. Um a, a friend of ours, a friend of Taylor and a friend of mine, John Satram, he has this great talk that he did one time called uh creative problem creating. <laughs> and I and that is a it, your podcast title reminds me of that talk so much of like that it's it's about creating challenge or curiosity or difficulty as opposed to like resolving everything that could be a loose end or something. So well, yeah, solving is coming to an end and what's worse than that. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, well, that's we've looked at that from different ways too. Some people, you know, are have that curiosity. They just want to, you know, learn things and figure things out, and they're not super, you know, interested in an end result and coming out with something that's like perfectly polished and finished. Yeah, but D- um, David, you're also like a a Pythony Django-y person, right? Yeah, I've done programming for forever, pretty much my whole life. So that was one of the things that. I started learning, you know, when I was like five and then yeah. I was typing in computer programs from magazines into, uh, an ancient, ancient, you know, computer. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Name names. What, what computer was it? Um, so the first, so besides I worked with a like teletype that was hooked up to like a mini computer back at like the government where my dad worked. Wow. So that nice. was the first computer I used. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So I was hooked up to the telephone and then, you know, t- you know, had a little typewriter basically that printed out the messages and you type back to it. So that was the most ancient thing. And then probably the next one after that was like a TRS-80 Model 3. Word. Uh, That's what I had as well when I was a kid. Wow. It's all that like all in one molded yep. floppy disk thing. Yep. Yeah. I had a clone. We had a clone. So it was like this company that was like making knockoff TRS-80 yeah, like Model 3 or something. It was like a you know, out of the back of a, you know, computer catalog. Sure. Sun- Sunnyvale, California, probably situation, something like that, you know. $8,000. Um, yeah, so it was, it was the same case. <laughs> it, yeah, exactly. It was the same case, but, like, there was a little square where Radio Shack put the Radio Shack TRS-80 Model 3 logo, and that square was just blank <laughs> on mine. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a generic computer. Like yeah, yeah. I mean, they probably bought the, the cases, yeah, from the same... Who knows, you know? Yeah, actually, that would be a fun... Um, they fell off like, a truck. Yeah. yeah, true crime-style podcast, like, who made the clone computers? Anyway. There's a buddy of mine who uh, who took a um, business degree, and one of the cool projects they had, one of the classes was to come up with an economic reason for some question that you... Like, oh. that basically, economics could be tied back to everything. That's cool. So one of the questions posed was why... Um, why is it that on drive-through ATMs they still have Braille? Then the the answer was just, of course, that it's cheaper just to have one one die to blow yep. all those um, cases to. Yep. Sure. Yeah, also, if you think about it this way, I mean, if you need money and you're not sighted at nighttime, someone could drive you to the ATM. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you could give the them your card, but you yep. could also just go in the back seat. Yep. Operate sure. the ATM, no problem. Yep. yep. So nice. Cool. Yeah, I always like to think of the the second most obvious answer to those type of jokes, you know, or you know, questions. It's <laughs> uh-huh. like okay, right. you know, um, because you know, they're that's like the simple like you know joke answer. But then, what is is there like a more deeper, more complicated answer? Because that's one of my things is always it's more complicated than that. Like whatever you think, it's always it's more complicated. <laughs> so, so you say you're a programmer. No. <laughs> Every, yes, every, a little bit. <laughs> as a, yeah, as a designer, it's like, okay, so we'd like to do this, this, and this, and you just see, like, the programmer's face falling, like, uh, <laughs> Yeah. And, and they always, so. like, I always see that face, and I think, like, that's the, it's going to be harder than you could ever imagine face, so, yeah. yeah. Right. Is this a new experience, yeah. Rob, to not be disappointing a programmer in a long conversation? It, it is, actually, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, so. Yeah, is that you know some you've done design part of uh, software then from the design side? I, I spent a long time in like interactive agencies and stuff, and 
often, I mean, the sort of job of a designer or creative person at an agency is usually to like, you know, quote unquote, push the limit somehow in sure. what, what the website could be or whatever. And, um, and then just paying for it weeks at a time. <laughs> like, why did we say that? Like, you know, like this is impossible. I, I remember, um, this is just a super quick side note. I was working on this website for, for PepsiCo. This was way back in the day. And they were, this is, um, they were building a website for, for kids, uh, as like one of these, as it was called, it was called kidnetic as opposed to kinetic. (laughs) And, uh, uh, PepsiCo's lawyers right now are filing the paperwork against me, but, um, yeah, but, uh, it was like, you know, make kids active by using the computer. And so, uh, but like they wanted to do this whole clippy style thing where like there was this character and he was like, okay, kids. And it was totally like a clippy ripoff, but they even wanted to like make it so you could customize clippy and stuff. So we spent weeks trying to build this thing. I still have a, yeah, a nervous tick see from that one. From that. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, yeah. That'd be I, really interesting. <laughs> yeah. I bet if you search kinetic, it did launch. It was a total disaster and they killed it immediately, but you know, All no right. surprise. We got paid. Gonna write that down. Um, yeah, I think that a lot of uh, early website projects were like that. Um, yep. <laughs> yep. Look at this. Um, I think Taylor's already got it. He's yep. left a link in the chat there. We'll check that out later. Um, <laughs> oh, I, I like in particular that they're trying to rebrand the word core by just getting it a K. <laughs> there you go. It's, yep. like, it's like such a Mortal Kombat 2 move. Yeah. <laughs> right. It may have been the same time frame. Who knows? It, yeah, just about. 2003? That's when that article came out. Yep. All right. One of the big uh, Photoshop projects that I'm the most proud of that I had my students work on was they had to make a, a like a fake advertising campaign. So I did this whole ad campaign about uh, cigarettes for children called Little Smokies. <laughs> it was the same, <laughs> same kind of thing, like, trying to find, you know, the kid oriented crayon font and the multiple colors and like the K and turning it backwards and, and all that stuff. Nice. Um, I was always so delighted by it. And then I'd let them loose on it and it would just be like, wah, wah. <laughs> 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 but, you know, I entertained myself. <laughs> right. Well, I think that's because smoking's not as much of a thing anymore, you know? So your younger, your students. Vapes for yeah. fetuses. That's what I, I should make. There you go. <laughs> That's terrifying, of course. I think that could happen. We can make that happen. No, Rob, you've, you've, uh, you've, you've, you've I, been sure. on, on actual <laughs> product launches. You've been in specifically on ventilators, so we could, we could yep. totally do this. Yeah, okay. can't, can't get them started too early on a ventilator. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right, right. <laughs> oh my god, there's your microtransactions again. Yeah, so I'm curious to tell you said you basically didn't have an example of someone who was a creative person either, you know, as a hobby or as a career, um, you know, growing up. Um, but now, of course, that is your job at uh, some some part. But I mean, I guess you're you're at college level, so you're not really you have access to middle schoolers and high schoolers to get them pointed in the right direction. But and Rob, you're you're also teaching now the same yeah, I teach in uh, design program, so I'm, I'm definitely art adjacent by by quite a bit. Okay, what kind of design is that? Is it? Um... Oh, that's a it's a great question. Uh, uh, I mean, design <laughs> is one of those words that's really big, sort of like art or engineering. You know, um, there's all sorts of them, which is why you asked. Um, uh, I teach uh, UI UX, uh, but I teach okay. kind of non non traditional UI UX. I don't. We do end up 
working on websites and apps, but we think about it through lots of different pathways. Um, like it could be like service design, uh, et cetera. I teach a sort of speculative fiction version of a UI UX class where um, one of the kind of projects that they have to tackle is that they have to sort of assume or kind of role play that every we all joined a company that um, uh, has developed this ability to travel forward or backward in time. And so how do we um, how do we sort of propose this ability out in the world? Um, and so the team break the, the class breaks up into three groups, either like the hardware people who want to make the actual hardware interface to that the time travel machine um, needs in order to travel backwards or forward in time. And then there's um, the app team. They make the kind of booking app. Uh, sort of like a flight travel app or like Airbnb style app. And then there's the brand team and stuff who work on um, like the corporate face of the website and stuff. And so uh, I try to give, it's a, it's a required class. So, so I try to make it broad enough that, you know, no matter what kind of design you're into, you get to do something fun. Rob, I wonder if you could do a thing where like halfway through the semester, you call an emergency meeting because one of your, um, one of your people stepped on a butterfly during the Jurassic period and like uh, <laughs> screwed up the present or something. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah, like they have yeah. to do a press release to uh, do damage control. I, I actually have a, um, uh, so by the time this rolls around, I'm usually so exhausted <laughs> when the semester is <laughs> going that I never like actually execute this, but twice I've wanted to have make like mock New York times articles, you know, that say yeah. like, you know, you know, a family critically injured, you know, like to, to create yeah. this sort of bad social energy, because that happens right around whether it's AI or Bitcoin, all sorts of new new technologies, right, create these social problems. And so, how, how do you deal with that? But I, I'm so tired by the time that comes around in the class, I never make it. But maybe maybe this semester I'll do it. Dude, you should do a. Um, have you ever done that really easy demo where you just go into developer mode and then you just switch out the uh, body content of different paragraphs? Yeah. Like, yeah, you could you could load that up in ten minutes. That's another class I teach. Um, Dave, you asked which, what I teach. I teach um, uh, like a web and app design class, and then I teach a virtual reality class. So yeah, I should have those classes join up on the on the project. Yeah, you have a great combination. In, totally. in that class, you do the time travel project. Are those are there all those different types of designers, like students? Like, are there people who do whatever? I don't know what type of design you call it. Mechanical yeah, design or yeah, they're you know, graphic all, they're design. All, Right, they're all design students. Um, you know, they're, they're, many of them are trying to find their own kind of way through design. You know, um, okay. You know, do they like doing more three D stuff? Do they like doing more CAD stuff? Do they like doing more brand stuff or more web stuff? And so, and app stuff. So, I try to like let them self select into kind of where they want to go with it, and then teach the fundamentals of like UX research and user interfacing and stuff through their interest as opposed to making them suffer through building a website because a lot of them just like to draw <laughs> so okay is that like a um like an introductory course then it is they take yeah. that pretty soon yep. yeah yep interesting all right taylor what so what kind of stuff do you teach uh let me see if it says on my notes um it doesn't say um <laughs> i'm happy to tell you uh yeah so i'm at columbia college in chicago and uh, I think I've been there about 12 years. And so for a long time, I was teaching the first year material and kind of rewriting the curriculum uh, with many other people. And then I'm also teaching sculpture and then computer-aided fabrication. 
And I had a student a couple of years ago that got me really interested in Blender. So that's been a big focus of what I'm working on right now. So you teach, uh, what about the sculpture? Does that ever interact with the uh, computer stuff? Uh, yeah. So uh, last semester, um, I've been really switching over into a bearing where I'm trying to work on projects that I can describe in one sentence. And if I can't get in and out Ooh. in one sentence, nice. then I just need to keep working, you know, and, and find something. So um, part of that is for legibility to the students. So I ran one of the um, uh, steamroller printmaking events, right? These are somewhat common, especially in universities where you have a giant woodblock uh, relief plate and then run it over with a steamroller to make the impression. Uh, the secret being that, of course, an actual honest-to-goodness printing press exerts more pressure, like and more effectively than a steamroller, but a steamroller is just you know, fun to watch. Wow. Yeah. So we did one of those. I built a, um, uh, a furnace that can melt... 30 pounds of aluminum in a go. So I've been kind of starting up our foundry program a little bit, but I've been kind of leaning into things that are sort of macho and badass, but, you know, free from the old connections where macho requires lots of big hairy dudes. So I'm trying sure. to turn my students of every stripe into big hairy dudes, <laughs> even I the non hairy and the non dudes. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so they, you know, so it plugs into computers like we were, um, I did the printmaking thing. It was technically a sculpture class, like an advanced topics sculpture class. And so I said, look, I'm going to try to get us a steamroller. Nothing is certain yet. But at the end of the semester, we need to have a bunch of giant uh, relief blocks. So we cut all those on the CNC mill. Um, and yep. then for the metal casting, we made all of our patterns on the CNC as well, or in some cases, 3D printing. And then ran with those positives and sand bolts and cast them there. All so right. like some old that's, technology, some new yeah. technology. That's cool. So it's like very hands-on stuff. Um, even in the computer-related stuff, you're still trying to turn it into a physical product. Oh, yeah. Like if anything ever seems like I'm leaning too close to an NFT, I get pretty bored. <laughs> so okay. Although I'm kind of working on something that's not too far away from that right now. But the... Uh, for the most part, I want it to be out in space where I can, you know, occupy the same physical environment as the work. People I've talked to in engineering, uh, not a lot of them actually get to touch anything. So especially in the undergraduate degrees, they're not getting to, you know, actually physically see how things work. You know, so stick more to the math and the classroom yep. portion of that. So. I'm always curious to see, you know, opportunities to, you know, have those things interact. And like you said, you, one of your friend, uh, is, has a degree in engineering and art. So I think that that's a pretty cool combination. Yeah. <laughs> she's have, great. Uh, yeah. Kay, Kay kind of travels around like a Jenna Appleseed building, um, iron casting furnaces at other people's institutions. Uh, she's great. Yeah. Everyone should look her up. It's dart two T's. Okay. All right. I wrote that down. Yep. <laughs> Might have to have her on the show because that's uh, yeah, that's super it. interesting. And it's uh, definitely, you know, the confluence of things I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, it's funny. The whole idea for this show came out originally. It was, what was it called? Oh, it was called The, um, uh, the Problem Solving of Art. Because I don't know if you guys are familiar with the, there's a book called The Art of Problem Solving. Yeah. From like 1920. Okay. That's a algebra book. 
that teaches you the art of problem solving, but it's all specifically about math. And, um, and if you look up uh, creative problem solving resources and like why you need to teach problem solving, if you go, uh, you know, especially for, uh, you know, whatever, primary and secondary schools, you'll see it's all about how it ties to specifically getting a job in, in business. And I was always, you know, that's fine, but it's not interesting. Um, <laughs> I wanted to, you know, that problem solving is kind of like a, you know, an innate, uh, like instinct that uh, humans have. And it's good just to teach that, you know, as a skill itself, um, you know, and the more people get to interact with different materials, different tools, different, just have these different experiences. It makes them, you know, better at problem solving things in their world. So they're just more confident about whatever, if their car breaks down or they have to, you know, fix their sink or whatever. <laughs> um, these people who, you know, and I, you know, end up meeting through the online maker community who, you know, are willing to try anything. They have this curiosity of, you know, trying to figure things out and they're more interested in, you know, the journey in, of figuring things out than, you know, just having a skill, you know, so it's mm -hmm. there. Sure. <laughs> it's yeah. all about the process. Yeah. I think learning to learning to improvise too is such a big part of problem solving, you know, like feeling like you are comfortable trying something and being able to back your way out of it or like let it take you in a kind of unknown direction is such a powerful skill to have, you know, that, that can really open those doors. Yeah, exactly. Like once you have solved some problems, you are willing to try new things because you know, you'll be able to, you know, yeah, figure it out. Or even if it all goes wrong, it's not the end of the world. You've learned something from that, even that process. Totally. Yeah. You know, making the mistakes is just as important as the success. So, and I know that on here, a lot of the people I talk to don't like to talk about the word art or call anybody an artist because they associate it with specifically the academic, you know, aspect of that. And again, like, you know, galleries and pretentious people and all that. And they feel like, you know, they haven't earned that title because, you know, whatever they make is, you know, functional or it doesn't, you know, it, you know, somehow doesn't meet the standard. And I always go back to the idea that art is more of like the art is the process, the, you know, the experimentation, the figuring things out. And it comes down to a way of interacting with the universe, right? So art is like how you look at things and how you experience them more than, you know, talking about, you know, art in a gallery or whatever. And again, both of those things are, could be called art, but one is interesting and one is boring to me. <laughs> so for you, the end product being art is boring? Um, well, just if you talk about art and you think about it as, you know, it's in a museum, so that's art and that that's the only thing that can be called art. And if you aren't, you know, a fine artist, you know, or a traditional visual artist, then, you know, then you can't talk about art. You don't, you know, you can't call yourself an artist. And, and again, it doesn't matter if you call yourself an artist or not. I'm more interested in what people are doing, you know, in the work than what it's called. Mm -hmm. So sure, do you think yeah. of yourself as an artist? Mm. I guess, I mean, I called, I named my Instagram after that. And I guess, I don't know what it is. 
So <laughs> I get, tend to go on that. And a lot of the stuff that I've actually done recently has been, you know, printmaking, screen printing, stuff like that. And again, most of the stuff I make is ends up being a joke, but um, it's still fun. And I don't know, you know, what kind of art it is. And it's not really important, but I guess I just don't like to have the limitations, you know, to tell people that they're not an artist. I don't, <laughs> you know, sure. if you think you're an artist, then you are. And I don't want to, you know, set, you know, limitations to people. Like it's the same thing if you talk about like the maker community, right? Like, so some people might be like, think that making or the maker community is all about like woodworking or 3d printing or have this like limit to the different things that might be called a maker. But, you know, I, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in inviting everybody in because again, learning all these different, you know, any kind of different technique, it could be knitting, it could be, you know, casting aluminum, <laughs> it could be, you know, printmaking with a steamroller, mm-hmm. uh, building a website, all those different things, uh, you know, are part of the creative process. So it's more interesting and you learn more by being inclusive than trying to exclude people. For sure. Yeah. I think that's definitely true about including people, but then, you know, I have some, light pushback to offer for the sake of discussion, because I think a certain amount of discrimination towards process and objects is interesting because I think whether people regard themselves as part of the art community or the maker community or whatever, you still have an internal sense of when something is going the way you want it to, or, you know, even if you're responding to something and you improvise and you're surprised and so on, I do think that there is some room in there to say, you know, this result is in the right direction. This result is not. But what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that makes sense because you do want to be able to evaluate what you've done, you know, and mm-hmm. like, okay, was this what I'm going for? Um, what did I learn from this? What do I want to do next? How do I want to explore the next thing? And you need to have some sort of goal in mind. You're right. So if you're, you know, if you're making an axe or a table or whatever, you have some standard that you're working towards you know, they could be anywhere on the spectrum of all these different, you know, possibilities. Um, you could be trying to recreate something that already exists. You could be trying to do something that you haven't seen before. So yeah, you definitely have to have a standard an idea, you know, something to work towards, not just, but yeah. And again, maybe that's not what I'm doing all the time. So that's why I talked to all these different people. I'm trying to get ideas. I'm trying to understand what I'm doing, um, to kind of figure out what direction I want to go. Rob, what's the weirdest standard, like self-imposed standard that you set for yourself? Ooh, in my, in my, in my creative work. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of, you know, I'm imagining the modern creative practice. I I went through this a lot during some travel recently, talking to a lot of people that, you know, say, what kind of art do you make? Oh yeah. And I feel like everyone sort of sucks air over their teeth and then launches into this, you know, novella. Uh And, and, and sometimes the best way to describe it is just to say, here's a thing I made, and then they can take whatever they want to from that. But the, um, I guess I'm wondering, like, you're working out at the Center for Land Use Interpretation, making bad housing or whatever it is. Uh-huh, like, uh-huh. is there some crazy metric where you realized at the end of the day, like, I'm going to decide how successful I was based on the height of this pile of guano. Right? You know what I'm talking uh-huh. about? Like, like what's, uh-huh. the yeah, weirdest, yeah. Yeah. what's the yeah. weirdest scale that you set for yourself? I mean, I think... I think um, uh, I'll die, I'll get I'll, I'll I'm going to put a pin in that one and come right back around to it. But to me, yeah. how I differentiate uh, art versus anything else is about community, right? Like, um, 
it's kind of who you hang around, you know, and um, and then influences. Well, that's true with design. Like, right. Like the difference, I think, between there are like kind of, you know, maybe certain goals that are specific to the field of design are, are making. But I think a lot of it is just about who you're hanging out with, you know, um, because all of these fields are so complicated that it's it's, you know, like like a lot of people might think of a maker as someone who's a kind of like lowercase C capitalist, like trying to like make their way on YouTube or something, right? Like, sure. and it's like, like, I, like that's a type of maker, but that's not who all makers are, you know? And the same is true with artists. Right. Like not every artist is trying to, you know, uh, get into the Gagosian gallery or whatever, right? Like, it's like, you, you know, it's just, everyone's trying to figure out how to apply the thing that they love uh, to their own life in a fruitful way and maybe make a living, maybe not, maybe just make time to be able to do it. So, I mean, I, I think it's, um, complicated, but I do, I do to loop back to Taylor's question. I think for me, when I am thinking about art making, I guess I ultimately just want it to be, and this is so boring, but like interesting, you know, like I want someone to see it and be like, what is that? (laughs) You know? And, um, And to me, and this gets into my own definition of art making, which is for me, art making is about asking or provoking questions, right? Like you don't make the thing, you could make the thing to sit in every day, but your goal around making a thing to sit in every day is to kind of make a, a, a sideways declaration that is also maybe about what is a chair? What is the everyday? What is our morning routine, right? These sort of socio-philosophical questions that are attached to the things we make, right? Where if you, uh, someone else who's making a chair who uh, could just be like, you know, I'm really trying to perfect making this chair because I want to make plans for this chair so other people can make it. That could be an art project, right? Like, because then it's about like um, um, open source maybe, or it's about communication or it's about... um, teaching, you know, that kind of thing. Those are all art topics just as much as they're maker topics. So, uh, it, so then in a way it's like who comes through the door to talk to you about what you make kind of sets up that conversation, right? If, if an, an art person comes through, they might be like, Oh, do you know this artist, blah, blah, who has also did a chair project. Right. And then you're having right. an art conversation. The next person who walks through the door could be coming from a maker community or from a de- furniture design community. And they might say like, you know, Oh, I, you know, this really reminds me of this um, uh, furniture maker from 1970 who did a very similar thing. Or do you know about this one person who he was the first person to like kind of make open source plans that anybody could use? And so I think it just sort of ends up, you know, what you decide to pay attention to is whether you get to call yourself an artist or a designer or a maker or not. Um, I, I have always been uncomfortable calling myself an artist until recently. And uh, I will say for anyone who's nervous about it, I have found it very freeing to be able to finally call myself an artist um and uh it 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 hasn't sort of brought the backlash that i kind of have always been worried about and maybe i just stopped caring (laughs) but but yeah i don't know (laughs) i think that's that's definitely a point uh you know that you know as you go along you like don't care what other people think you just yeah right right. and again if you're you might just use art as a shorthand to kind of you know explain to people like they have an expectation of what art is. And if you do something that falls under a common, you know, expectation of that, then you might just say that so that they'll understand, like you said, like, what do you, what do you do? And then you say like, you know, I'm an artist and they 
do want to they want to know what you make so you have to show them a picture or something of what you've done yeah 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 and, yeah. and all, all of our communities are kind of also like bound up by expectation right like a lot of people who maybe don't hang around artists very much think that art is about making a thing of beauty or about these you know this these sort of other things and it's like what well, it doesn't have to be you know i mean fortunately kind of in the 20th century and now 21st century we've all been able to kind of let our hair down a little bit about like what a thing who who a type of person is supposed to be you know and also like even in college right different areas of study have kind of happened like i always think now that like i was really into computer science in college but i i discovered that computer science wasn't for me but at the time i didn't know that like sts people science and technology people which is now a field right or is the, mm-hmm. is is a those those are my people you know i didn't know that because i didn't even know it existed and they kind of didn't exist so much uh at that time though you know um now I know about it. And so now I'm like, oh, dang, like if I was able to redo college again, I wouldn't have like pointed my energy into one field and then felt kind of freaked out about it, you know? And a lot of people feel that way about art too, right? They're like, oh, I walked in an art gallery and I immediately felt disassociated and weird and excluded. And um, that doesn't feel good either, you know? So um, it's tough. It's a tough nut to crack no matter what. No. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons why I probably think about art i guess you know yeah Yeah, i go into like a museum i can experience that you know in a certain way you know i go to i'm curious about yeah i'm curious about a a lot of different aspects of it i'm curious about like how did they make that yeah and also like what what are they trying to say like what's you know what what message did they intend and then what am i seeing in this you know and you have all these different ways to look at it you know and some of my friends, you know, people, they go to a museum and they're like, that's an interesting painting. And then they <laughs> move on. Right. And yep. I'm like, yep. no, wait, we have to, we're going to, we have to look at this for 20 minutes. Uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm having all these questions about it. So, um, so even from that aspect, it's just, again, it's more of a, like experiencing the art. And then again, like I said, I don't, you know, don't have a lot of time to do all the creative stuff I want to do. So I'm not, mm. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't know what, uh, what my goal is, what my, you know, what my making is going towards. So again, a lot of the stuff I end up making is a funny idea I had. So then I draw, you know, a picture of that and post it online because I think three people will think it's funny, Um, (laughs) you know, um, because that's the amount of effort and time I have to explore these things. So for sure, for sure. um, Hopefully I can, you know, turn that into something more interesting later, but you know, still trying to figure it out. Uh, Have you ever read Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction? I personally have not. That's interesting. You might want to check that up. It's by Walter Benjamin. It's pretty short. But it um it talks about I don't know that I buy it, but it's a it's a frame of reference for thinking. And it's kind of bemoaning the way that film, both still film and um, movies, can reproduce something in the way in a way that's different from painting. Mm-hmm. But they mm-hmm. talk about how the common man, you know, the uh, hoi polloi, they go to a uh, museum and look at a painting and they absorb the painting into themselves, right? So they they remain, but now they have been improved or, you know, their Changed. intellect increased. Yeah. Um, whereas with a film, the film is so believable and creates such a um, 
a virtual reality, like a pre-digital virtual reality, yeah. that they are yeah. absorbed into the film. And therefore, they are decreased when they encounter film as opposed to encountering painting. It's just a set of ideas, but it's it's one that comes up a lot because you can kind of substitute whatever the current freakout is, whether it's artificial uh-huh. intelligence uh-huh. or whatever. But yep, it's also sure. one of those rare theory pieces that's 12 pages long instead of. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I like it. Then I'll definitely yeah. check it out. Yeah. It's, <laughs> cool. it's old yeah. enough that it's, you know, it's all over for free. Right. Yep. Yeah. Just have to take a look. Um, yep. Yeah. I'll check it out. Because again, I mean, one of the things I'm always been interested in since high school was printmaking. So that's what you, uh, another type of mechanical for sure. reproduction, obviously. For you, sure. I think you can, you know, and again, some of those techniques were used to create, you know, copies of the first photographs. So, yep. There's another, yeah. <laughs> now you have a copy of a photograph. It's not the, and it's not even the same medium. It's not a photographic print, but it's a, a you know, an engraving or whatever that's yep. created from that. So that's interesting. Well, and if you think about it, you know, most photographic processes that have to travel through the negative, you're not getting the the principal medium, you're getting a reflection of that medium. Right. So even though it's moving into a space that's closer to the way that the eye sees it, it's not how the camera saw it. You know, it's artificial. Whoa, Taylor, you're blowing my mind right now. <laughs> yeah, well, just, I mean, there's, if you understand any aspects of photography from the most basic, you you know, the photographers manipulating what they see, they could be trying to recreate it exactly as they saw it, but then they see it different from everybody else anyway. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but they could be trying to uh, change it, increase the contrast or do whatever. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, yeah. that's well, and the eye is not the same as the lens, you know, a camera right. can show certain things and focus and certain things out and the eye cannot do that, at least in one instance of time. Yep. That's always, right. the, and that's of course, always like, the old rag of like Ansel Adams negatives are not very good. You know, like if you look at his negatives, you're like, really this, those came out of that, you know, because his, his <laughs> real sort of craft was in the dark room. Mm. Okay. That, that I didn't know. Um, but like dodging and burning in that kind of yeah, thing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like yeah, he, yeah. he, he worked really hard. Like, and I think you can actually access his negatives and print them yourself or something. Um, They're probably uh, scanned in somewhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I was just like, wow, that's cool. You know, it's like, again, like, he's creating what's in his mind's eye rather than even what he saw or what he saw wowed him, but the camera couldn't do the work for him. Totally. He had to, you know, keep working at it after, after it passed through the camera phase and into the printmaking, the print, you know, printing phase uh, in order to create what's in his head. And, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a fun thing to think about. It's also kind of a way for him to preserve his own uh, money-making venture. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why my negatives, you're not going to be any better off. It's my brain. Yep. (laughs) Yep, it's all in there. Yeah, there's so so many different uh, layers to think about that because, um, you know, you you want to recreate from a photograph, you want to recreate the experience you had of being there, right? I mean, that's what most people want to do if they're taking a picture with their phone, you're on vacation or whatever, you see a really cool sunset and you take a picture with your phone and you're like, oh, this doesn't look like I felt it did when I was experiencing it. Obviously, well, you know, it's a four inch rectangle. It's not <laughs> that you don't have the size and the scope, um, you know, maybe depend on what size computer monitor you have or whatever, uh, you know, so then that's the, why we have Instagram filters, it's the same thing. He was doing it back, you know, at the beginning of photography, everything, almost every, you know, fake f- photographs were created as soon as photography was created, you know? So 
they were always trying to manipulate them ever since they've been invented. And, yeah. Uh, I've always had this this photo in my head that I want to take, and I've had it in my head for years, of me and my dog in wizard outfits. <laughs> and the problem is now <laughs> is I've I've imagined this photo so much, I'll never be able to make it. You know, like like I'll never get to what's in my head that would make this photo cool. But I still kind of have to try, right? It's like, oh, man, man maybe it'll take me somewhere else. But eventually I'm going to have this cool photo of me and my dog in wizard outfits. But it doesn't exist yet. But it's existed in my head for a very long time. And that, and that in a way, is going to be the sort of primary motivator of the photo rather than, like, quote-unquote reality, you know? So, yeah. Creativity stuff. It would be really fun to see, you know, you try to recreate it. And you're like, that wasn't it. All right, you got to do it yeah, again. Right, right, <laughs> see, right, yeah, right. See, all your different your process of trying to get closer and closer to the ideal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that would be fun too. That is a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Just because it would be fun to see, yeah, you know, pictures of you and your dog in uh, wizard costumes. <laughs> yeah. 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 I just been like, Nope, that's not it. That's not it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, e- even that, that would be great. And of course it would be, you know, philosophically we could talk about the, the whole process and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your, yeah. Your state of mind while you were making it. Yeah, for sure. I'm generating this image on Dali right now. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my goodness. This is going to be amazing. Nice. Real-time artificial yeah. intelligence. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I have never gone that far. This is great. You guys have references and links uh, in the chat here. Did you guys do that during your show? Were you always sharing? Taylor is so good at that. Yeah, he's always throwing yeah. links in the chat, which is such a great skill. I'm always too yeah. freaked out. <laughs> just, I'll save those and look at them later because I think nice. it's too distracting for me. I can barely do a podcast. I um, know, right? Yeah, <laughs> I'm curious what experience you guys have had, uh, you know, doing teaching and sharing, you know, what you do and kind of trying to inspire people or whatever. You know, I'm not sure exactly what your goals are, but what kind of stuff have you learned from your students? Ooh, Taylor, I think you're up. I think this is the question that you're up first. Can I... Am I able to send this image on? Uh, I can show you what we got. Or am I distracting uh, everybody? I don't it, think I can put no, it in the go chat. for it. I don't think put I can it in put the it chat in the and chat. then we'll uh, we can yeah. we can discuss it. Can I? Let's do it. it does it exist on a on a uh, screenshot maybe. on a website now? Oh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. Well, oh, here we go. I can share it. How fast are you? Can you upload it to your Google Drive or something? There you go. Yep. <laughs> oh, here you go. D- Dolly's got a. You know, they want to uh, have people do this kind of stuff. Right. All right, let's open this up. <laughs> well, all right. Doesn't look like doesn't look like what I had in my head. Yeah. All right. I associate the Polaroid with Los Angeles. I don't know. Is oh. that fair? Yeah, it, it is fair. Yeah. Sort of golden era Los Angeles color palette. Anyway, for, awesome. for anybody who can't see this, which is everybody, um, right? It really, it really did not. It's no. It's awareness of Rob Ray is very poor. No, there's yes, a hockey, hockey player with my name, so I'm, I'm always going to right. be able to dodge yeah. artificial intelligence. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. So yeah, anyway, don't have... yeah, I don't want to make for boring radio here, but the uh, <laughs> that's just for just for you guys, just a little something, something. Yeah. Uh, the sure. question was, what now? What have I learned from students? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I had a student who really got me interested in Blender, and I'd been teaching. Rhino, the 3D modeling software for you know 15 years or almost 20 years or something. And then um, took a look at it, was trying to look around and think, well, you know, is this worth investing time in? But as a 
a big participant in the open source community. And I was really excited to get involved with something that was, you know, older than most of my college students. So like it's right. both open source and has staying power. And then the guy that's at the head of blender is super into the mission and then, you know, claims that it'll never be uh, locked behind a paywall. But that was, you know, that was one of my students who got me going on it. Um, I'm teaching a class next semester called speculative sex. That's about sex and gender in the year 3000. And so that's been one where, um, you know, my students are sort of, Columbia is a very queer school um, per the, um, you know, the questionnaires that we give our students. And I really want to see things that they're interested in mm, in the classroom, mm-hmm. but also encourage them to learn more about it. So it's this interesting kind of hand in hand thing where I grew up in this different era of sexual norms and gender norms and so on. But also the students in my classes, they are still 18 and 19 years old. And so on the one hand, they might get me to think about polyamory or other things that I wouldn't have considered, but also maybe they're a little bit less critical about some things than they could be. So a friend of mine was pointing out this great term. Maybe it was you, Rob, I can't remember, but the, the ignorant schoolmaster. Oh. <laughs> you know, where you come in there and you just say like, I don't know, but I'm a smart person, I think, with a head on my shoulders and let's read this book on queer theory together and let's have discussions. And then you know, that led to a great discussion, for example, in the last iteration of the class where all of the self-identified lesbians in the class were talking about how there's so few explicit lesbian bars left in the United States, I think less than 10. And so they were talking about, you know, it's just really important to us to have a space where we get to define what happens in that space. And then I just pointed to one of their classmates and said, well, is our, you know, is our trans colleague welcome in that space? And can she make decisions about that space? And everyone kind of went, oh, <laughs> and then they had this They're big, like, oh, well, they had a big discussion <laughs> about it. You know, does yeah, cool. that count? And, you know, who's allowed and blah, blah, blah. And so I felt like I could kind of use my um, comparatively conservative position, you know, not self-identifying in these areas to you know, use my privilege to make sure the class runs and to give it some cover from the rest of the institution. And then hopefully Mm -hmm. we can talk about things that are student focused and forward looking as opposed to backward looking and apologetic. Like, you know, I represent a patriarchy and whiteness and all these things that has plenty to apologize for. But once the apologies are done, you actually have to do something that matters. (laughs) Like nobody cares about your apology. (laughs) And so I feel like a lot of people in my position just spend all day saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and self-flagellating. And you really got to get out there and like, let's go, you know, research sexual culture of Chicago. And let's open up these doors for students who clearly are operating, you know, way out in front. Um, so I think, yeah, try, trying to like take the lead for my students, but then also at the same time, push them to go further on it is an interesting balance. That's what I'm working on. Awesome. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm much new. I'm much newer teaching than Taylor is, so um, I I still feel like the training wheels are definitely on for me. Um, I think the thing that I I'm still wowed by is every student is different, like, and it's so easy to want to compartmentalize students that are doing well, students that are not doing well, students that are in the middle, whatever. Um, and that in some ways, like they give, they give me the assignment of just mixing it up all the time in order to try to connect uh, to them where they are, you know? And, and I just, 
am constantly amazed by being wrong all the time. Like I'll be like, oh, you know, uh, this student hasn't shown up for two weeks and it's easy to write them off or whatever. And then they show up and, and um, you know, you find out a totally interesting set of circumstances or stories or whatever. Um, you know, sometimes you're right, but it, it, you're re- often right for the wrong reasons. And so it's just interesting to be constantly challenged by humanity, you know, which is really what students are, you know, these sort of group of people self-selected into this class and here we all are. And so how do you, um, I don't know, make it, make it fruitful for everybody. And I think especially when there's so many ways a person could learn now through YouTube or through discord channel or whatever, um, uh, workshop, right. Whatever. Um, it's, uh, fun to think about, um, I, I don't know, like what, what, what would be a class that everyone would actually want to show up to, you know, <laughs> and like, yeah, right. and like be inspired by and like learn from, um, w- without, you know, I think a lot of, um, teachers maybe think about like, how can I make this easier for a student? And I think in some ways it's, it's just, how can I make the challenge more fun rather than, you know, giving someone less work to do or more work to do or being intentionally opaque so that students feel like they have to quote unquote work for it or something gross like that. Um, so yeah, just trying to like, I, I Taylor, I think you told me this way back in the day. Um, if it wasn't you, my apologies, but um, if I it was it, good, it was me. Okay, yeah, cool. It was bad. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think asshole. it was you. I think it was you. But it, uh, the, what you said is, and or someone said is, you know, um, teaching is like being the captain of a pirate ship. They could mutiny at any minute, and it's totally true. Like, and it's in your mind, like, like they won't mutiny, but in, but sometimes you feel like they are, and so just trying to like. Uh, Maybe I also I also just watched Master and Commander <laughs> this summer for the first time, go. and mm-hmm. so so now I'm uh, you know uh, going to school on how to be how to run a pirate ship. But um, yeah, I don't know. I was just that, I mean I think that the, just the dynamism of humanity is the thing that students bring to me that keep me on my toes all the time. Awesome! I love the pirate ship analogy. That just reminds me of the photography class I took uh, when I went back for graphic design to try to learn something. Uh, you know, artistic <laughs> after a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were all, it was night school. So they were all adult students. Yeah. And yeah. we basically had like one class where we started going through this lecture or whatever. And then pretty much the whole rest of the semester was just in the dark room. Everybody just wanted to be in the dark room. They all, we did, we all already had experience with photography. We, you know, yep. I went yep. to uh, Paris, like on my honeymoon during this time. So I had like cool. 25 rolls of film to develop. Wow. Yeah. So I just developed all this film and uh, uh, just worked, uh, you know, in the dark room the whole time. So we just basically didn't have a class. So we just uh, <laughs> made, you know, made work the whole time. So that was a interesting occurrence, you know, that kind of related to that, like where yeah. the students kind of steered the ship. Um, and then Rob, you said that, you know, you kind of think art, like it's a community of the people mm-hmm. that you surround yourself with. Yeah, for sure. Do you did that, concept have anything to do with going into teaching that you Hmm. want to uh, either do you think about it I guess beforehand or like did you realize it afterwards (laughs) I yeah no I I think so I mean I think um I mean I think one of the the most fun parts of educating is really just like like firing the confetti cannon of links and inspirations and other social connections a person might be able to make through their craft, you know? And, um, I think a lot of times 
as a educator, we get sort of over attached, or at least I do to like the skill or the approach or the technique or the history. And in some ways it's just about, um, you know, uh, not getting too opaque with them, but like really just giving them a lot of stuff to look at and experience and, and be challenged by. I think especially because increasingly people are able to self-curate their life experience so precisely, right? Like through YouTube right. recommendations, TikTok, et cetera, et cetera. Like as an educator, we have this very um, more and more unique position of being a person who can, you know, lob mind grenades <laughs> into the classroom and just be like, Hey, look at this, <laughs> like, or check this out. Yeah. And, um, and then they do the same thing to me, right? They'll, they'll be like, Oh, have you seen this? You know? And I'll be like, no, what's that? And so, um, you know, they, they, they come right back at me, but I think that's, um, you know, it's a more and more of a, it's a rare treat, right? I guess is what I want to say to have time with a group of people and just not know what you're going to get, you know, because uh, we're so we're so used to getting what we want, <laughs> uh, right? At least in a sort of media and learning space. Sure, Bob, you're one of the few people that I believe will actually be able to hold on to that non-jaded view for your entire teaching <laughs> career. Because, yeah, like, awesome. <laughs> I've got I've gotten a lot more hard edged than you, I think. <laughs> I still get actually, actually yeah. I I had a I had a really great event with a student who was coming three hours late to a four hour class and then wound up showing me some work at some point and said, well, you know, I can show this to you if, if you want to see it, like, do you want to see it? And I said, no, I don't give a shit. <laughs> like, like I was like, and I was really, I was really kind of hard on the student and said, I care as much as you care. I cannot care yep. more than you. Yep. clearly don't care. And you're sending me that message loud and clear. So you're asking me if I want to look at it like, no, that's a waste of time. That's a waste of your time and mine. You don't care. I don't care. I'm just going to mirror back what you give me. And then the next day, the next week, he showed up and really put some effort into it. Mm -hmm. And so it's yep. just, it's funny how sometimes like the whole sort of holding hands and making nice and everything. This is not a criticism of you, Rob, but I'm just thinking about like, you know, some of the students, I feel like students sort of, whether they realize it or not, they instruct you on how they need to be handled. Mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. sometimes going ahead with your gut instinct, even if it's not super, if it doesn't feel good, sometimes mm -hmm. they want you to tune them up because otherwise mm -hmm. they're just in the class and they're like, here's another person that's just going to let me skate. So I'm just going to skate. Um, so that's what one I've been trying to struggle with, which, you know, can be polarizing because sometimes you pull that trigger and it is not what they wanted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I don't really encounter that that much. I feel like when I finally get there with a student, I mean, they know, like you know, they're humans yep. on Earth. Yeah, so. right. I mean, college, you know, is a. It, it's important to always keep in mind, right? College for many people, and they're not wrong, is a turnstile, right? It's a social and class turnstile. Like mm -hmm. I'm a college graduate. I walk through that turnstile, and now I can call myself a college graduate, get a college graduate job, yada yada, right? And it's like. My job is to make that turnstile as weird and interesting as possible, <laughs> you know, like, like, right, like, like, you know, because they got parents leaning on them or family members leaning on them or their social group leaning on them about money, job, whatever, whatever, family stuff, whatever. And like, that's not going to go away, right? Like, they're going to have that set of concerns in their life for forever. 
uh, they signed up to do this thing called quote unquote college. Like uh, they, that will in some ways force them to kind of phone it in, in certain ways, right. In certain classes, because they got a lot of other stuff going on or they just don't, they signed up and now they just don't really care about what they signed up for. And so my job is to, you know, at least weird them out and maybe wow them in some interesting way. So, yeah. What's, what's your job, Taylor? What do you, do you have a philosophy statement about your teaching similar to Rob's? I'll, I'll put that in my uh, teaching philosophy. Statement. Uh, <laughs> <See how> I... <laughs> I mean, uh, I feel like I get into teaching just because, you know, talking, I'm an extrovert and talking is something that doesn't take energy away from me. Mm. I mean, you know, up to a mm-hmm. point when, when I was teaching two classes in one day, like you get to the end of that, just feel kind of wrung out. Mm-hmm. Sure. But um, yeah, I'd like, I like talking to people about ideas. And so I think, you know, the school where I teach, it's not an Ivy league and there's a lot of people that are there, you know, first in their family to go to college or they're working full time or any number of challenges. Yep. And then it's been great. I feel like that's the environment where you meet somebody and you find opportunities to really have a huge impact on someone. Now I'm starting to get into a position where I can help connect students with scholarships and, you know, take them along yep. to conferences. And when we get to the conference, I can introduce them to a bunch of people. And then you can sort of like set your you know, network um, on fire like that. And it's good for everybody because mm-hmm. if you hook your friends up with interesting young people, it benefits your friends, it benefits the young people and yourself and whatever. So I think, um, yeah, just like trying to, it's kind of like scouting. Like I'm trying to find, you know, my people, And also people that are about to make a bunch of mistakes that are easy for me to spot. And so, you know, like with the right kind of people, I can say, oh, you're about to do that thing that I did. And like, probably I'm going to live for five less years because I was sculpting Bondo with my bare hand or whatever. Right. And so I I get a lot of satisfaction out of just there's there's some stuff. And I think this is true for anybody once they've reached a certain age. There's certain things that, you know, because you've spent 20 or 30 years doing it. And for you to offer the basics of that to a person who's 18 is easy, you know, because like someone comes in and they're relatively a blank slate in certain places. It always makes me laugh, right, where I bring up like, oh, Tim Burton shoot piece or something like every new 18 year old coming in is like, what? (laughs) Somebody got shot with a gun in a gallery and that was art. And, you know, to like for those of us that have studied art history, it's like, yeah, yeah, that's so obvious. But um, it's kind of refreshing, right, to be able to talk to people that are coming to the field anew, whatever the field happens to be. So I'm trying to like trying to not get jaded in that way, but also to take advantage of having seen people. I mean, I think Rob, would you agree? Students make essential. There's like 10, I don't know. This is the complete opposite of what you just said. I feel like there's 10 students and that's it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So much of my experience is like, yes, they're coming with kind of different perspectives. And there's some people that, you know, have like a life background or whatever that I've never heard of in in the details. But I think when it gets down to like the abstract thing, you know, there's like the searchers and there's the hiders and there's, there's a joke I always make with my students that I look around the class on the first day and I find the student with the most tattoos. And I'm like, you are most likely to cry at the critique, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that like they laugh and then they say, what? And then you kind of talk, like they talk about, what are tattoos and why do we get them? And like, how are we interfacing <laughs> the group? I don't know, Rob, do you feel like I'm disagreeing with you or do you feel like I'm actually agreeing with you just in a provocative way? Uh, no, I, I mean, I, I was, I, yeah, I definitely feel your like Chris Burden reference 
um, Chris Burden is this artist. He's passed away now, but he did this sort of very pr- provocative performance art piece where he had someone shoot him uh, with a gun and um, shoot at you know, him, but actually yeah. hit him. And then right. he was shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, he he did these other works where like he filled a room full of water and then was like standing on a ladder and then uh, uh, like shorted electric circuits into the water. So if he fell, he was like teetering on the ladder. So if he fell off, he'd be killed. You know, he gets crucified on top of a Volkswagen. So he did all this like very provocative work that now might be like a TikTok video, right? Like, <laughs> like right? Like, oh my god! You know, and so like, like TikTok has a lot to learn from Chris Burden, right? In a way, you know, and, and Chris Burden, if he was still alive, might be interested in what TikTok is. I don't know, you know what I mean? And so it's like. Um, a student, and this is where, like, to me, like, a student would be like, oh, have you seen that TikTok, blah, blah, you know, like, they would just fire off on some influence or thing that they saw, and I'm bringing this, you know, if we showed Chris Burton, which I think was, like, a 1970 piece or something like that, like, it's just fun to see those, you know, humans are still interested in doing uh, ridiculous things on camera, <laughs> you know, no matter how old, right. how old we are or whatever, um, and, you know, uh, I I, I think there's social merit in in that, whether it's in t- on TikTok or you know in an art gallery, right? So yeah, Chris Burton though also did some pretty amazing other works of art that um, uh, people who make stuff might be really into. He um, he has this massive uh, slot car installation. It's like a whole urban environment. Um, it looks like Sim City kind of, but in physical 3D space. It's at LACMA, and um, it's just That's all these collection, right? Yes, in the permit collection, and it's just yeah. hundreds of cars. And so there's just like, I don't know, three or four people's job who whose whose job it is is to maintain this artwork that's constantly breaking down and um and to repaint the cars. And so there's this whole kind of um part of the work, right, is that there's this whole kind of human infrastructure dedicated to maintaining this artwork that's constantly breaking, just like a city does. And right. um it's a beautiful artwork. Um, and it's a thing that, you know, a six-year-old can go to and totally love at the same time, you mm-hmm. know, a, a fancy art person can go to and totally love. So he's, I, I, he's done some work I really like. Um, though sometimes it's tough to admit it because he has some work that's pretty ridiculous also. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he had a, uh, a critique when he was teaching, was he teaching at a, where like, a one of the major Los Angeles UCLA, schools. I think is where he was. Yeah. He's him. teaching at UCLA. And I think the story goes that some kid brought a handgun to the critique they're like, oh, my teacher is Chris Burton. He's going to think this is awesome. And Chris Burton did not think it was awesome. Nope. <laughs> but he effectively no. had to like disavow no. all this work from his youth because he was attracting all these kids that thought that that's exactly what he wanted to see. But you know, who hasn't done stuff when they were younger that they think is kind of questionable later on? And then the, yep. the stakes are so much higher when that dumb stuff was like actually you know getting spikes through your palms and that sort of thing. Yeah. Chris Burton also wow. did this piece that was a. Uh, is a fully automated like balsa wood and paper airplane manufacturing uh production oh, line right. and at yeah, the yeah. end it, it it like flicks the plane up into this like domed like i don't know i think it's italian or something like this domed building and so the plane like flies up into the dome and then comes back down and that's like a total mr beast video or something now you know it's like <laughs> watch me or yeah. like um who's the engineer on youtube that like does all these like Mark Rober or something? Mark Rober, yeah. Mark, it's a total Mark Rober piece. Like, I'm going to make a machine that, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Chris Burton just needed a really good, you know, YouTube thumbnail and uh, he would have been hot on YouTube. Jeez, when you're wow. framing it that way, yeah, everything has been done and yeah, totally. All that yeah. is old is new yep. again. Yeah. Yep. Yep. 
Wow. You gave me a lot to think about there. <laughs> Did we go back and look at uh, how I watch YouTube and stuff. Although, I mean, again, that's kind of, you know, even with social media and stuff, I try to curate my feed so I don't, you know, see things that are a waste of my time, but For I sure. do try to explore and learn new things from it. And I know that, you know, that's not how everybody does it. So totally <laughs> it is, um, you know, I find, I find it to be valuable. Uh, Usually. Cool. I appreciate you guys uh, taking some time to talk to me today. This is a lot of fun. I don't want to keep you forever, but uh, um, if uh, people want to see what kind of work you do, where can they find you? I don't know whose turn it is. Uh, Taylor, your turn. Me? Uh, I'm posting a lot of stuff on Instagram under, I'm, I'm old enough that I got my URL, Taylor Hokinson first, but then um, some 18 year old got my Instagram. So it's Hokinson Taylor with no space. H-O-K-A-N-S-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And then um, I'm also working on these big cast iron flaming pieces with K-Dart yeah, and some of our so documentations great. on cool. uh, findwiththis.site. Another one to check in. And that's I'll F-I- have to F-I-N-E-W-I-T-H-T-H-I-S? You got it. Okay, yeah. S-I-T-E. Cool. All right, Rob, your turn. Yeah. Uh, I mean, all of my old work, uh, sort of like my kind of portfolio site is robray.net, R-O-B-R-A-Y dot N-E-T. Um, most of my like extended reality, augmented reality VR stuff is at shimmeringtrashpile.com. And I have a new project that is just getting started uh, that is a real fictional radio station called KDZU. And uh, kdzu.org is up as of this weekend. And uh, it is largely like a streaming slash YouTube effort, but there's a website as well. And uh, if you uh, sign up for the email list, I'll send you a KDZU sticker uh, for your car. Oh, thanks. And I want to take a second to thank everybody at Patreon who helps uh, support the show and make things happen. My top tier patrons are Matt from Artigiano Serio. Ed Johns, uh, Brian Callahan, and Sean Beckner. Uh, Thanks to those guys for uh, helping us out. Uh, If you want to support the show and get access to the after show, you can go to patreon.com slash making problems to solve. You can follow the show on Instagram at making problems to solve, and you can see what I'm working on at Dave Bauer art. Uh, Thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah. Happily. Sure. Now it's time for a podcast after dark.